What a Savior indeed. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would meet us in these pages, that you would stir our hearts, that you would encourage us and challenge us and build us up to make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat, everyone. The kids are going to go out to City Kids. And the rest of us are going to turn to Matthew 26 on page 832. Let me add my welcome to Kieran's. Ah, my wife and child are in the back. Uh, this is our first time to church. It's a big victory for us today already that we've made it. If she starts squalling, well, we'll just have to deal. I'm here for the next half an hour, and then, yeah. Uh, Matthew 26, my name's Mark. Let me add my welcome to Kieran's. And um, we're beginning a new series, uh, Passion, How Jesus' Last Day Changes Our Every Day. As Kieran said, we do believe that Jesus is alive. Um, we were focusing in the last day of his earthly life, and we begin in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. So, let's read Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners." rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so reads God's Word. The heart of Christianity, at the heart of Christianity, are a number of beautiful exchanges, a number of very important swaps. We see Darkness exchanged for light. We see slavery exchanged for freedom. We see abandonment exchanged for community, where curse is exchanged for blessing. We ultimately see death being exchanged for life. 
a number of beautiful exchanges. And this is what Jesus is anticipating in the garden. This is what he is anticipating as he prays in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows that the darkness is descending, that night has fallen, and as the cross looms larger, and as he is suspended upon it, darkness will fall over the face of the earth. Right after these verses, he is bound, he is imprisoned, he is no longer free. Everyone, including his closest friend Peter, will desert him will betray him. And as they nail him to the cross, he will hang under a curse. Finally, he will die and be placed in a borrowed grave. And one of the things that we cannot escape as we read this account and as we read through the rest of the pages of the New Testament, there is one thing that we cannot escape, and it is the thought that he does this for us. He does this as our substitute. He swaps himself into our place. And so Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the very essence of the gospel, that thing that he delivered to the Corinthian Christians, the thing that is of, as he describes it, first importance, what he would say is that Christ died for our sins. Again, that idea of exchange, that notion of substitute, it is inescapable. That is the reason for Jesus' death. But the beauty of these exchanges and the glory of the cross, that is not how Christianity is perceived. That is often not how the message of the cross is understood. The objection goes a little something like this. Perhaps some of you share it. Is that Christianity doesn't bring light. It brings intellectual darkness. It doesn't give freedom. It enslaves you to an old set of moral values. Far from bringing you into a community, what it actually does is it pushes you to the margins of your society, to the margins of your university campus. You are, if you are a Christian in your workplace or on a university campus, you are the outlier. It pushes you to the edges of reasonable, fair-minded society. It is a curse to you and a danger to those around you. Some of you might think like that. But I imagine that we all know somebody that does. You see, it used to be that in the world around us that Christianity was viewed as something good. It was a good thing. It was virtuous. That people could see the moral value in it. That even if they didn't buy it themselves, they still respected it. It still was held in, in high esteem. That view is largely gone now. It's been replaced with this view that Christianity is no longer good, but that it's harmful. It's no longer virtuous, but deviant. It is a deviant and harmful worldview. And so we come to the cross, and that's where we're going to be be spending our time studying over the next five weeks. We come to the cross, the very centerpiece of Christianity, 
To some, it is still seen as something good, at least as a good moral example, but to many, it is utterly irrelevant, and to an increasing number, it is not just irrelevant, it is offensive. It is offensive. The very idea that that we need someone to die for our sin, whatever that is, whatever sin is, is just bizarre. Not just bizarre, it is offensive. It is repugnant. It is offensive because it speaks of need. It speaks of helplessness. The old language to uh, man of sorrows, in the second verse, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He that sticks in the throat of our moral conscience in today's society. The cross speaks of moral absolutes, of an objective right and an objective wrong. I've been, as I've been re- working this through this week. I've been singing various songs in my head, uh, songs that have come to mind. Uh, indulge me if you don't know some of them. Uh, the band Fun, full stop. Uh, so in their album, uh, Some Nights, they have a song called One Foot. I put one foot in front of the other one. Uh, there we go. Um, and in the, in the song, I'll read you some of the lyrics. It says, I happened to stumble upon a chapel last night and I can't help but back up when I think of what happens inside. I got lots of friends locked in boxes. That's no way to live. What you're calling a sin isn't up to them. After all, I thought we were all your children. But I'll die for my own sins, thanks a lot. We'll rise up ourselves, thanks for nothing at all. So up off, your, up off the grind. Our forefathers are nothing but dust now. Or... Kings of Leon, in that perfectly crafted album, Only by the Night, final song, Cold Desert, uh, where, uh, where Caleb sings the line, Jesus, don't love me, no one ever carried my load. Or I think probably the, thing, the song in most recent times that has captured the thought most beautifully, certainly most compellingly, is the Hosier song, Take Me to Church. If the heavens ever did speak, she's the last true mouthpiece. Every Sunday is getting more bleak, fresh poison each week. We were born sick. You heard them say it. My church offers no absolutes. She tells me, worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. Command me to be well. Amen. And it is a resounding amen from the people around us. My church offers no absolutes. Tells me worship in the bedroom. Why? Why do an increasing number of people find the central message of Christianity to be not just irrelevant, but offensive? Why is that? Today, because we're going to be starting and looking at lots of different aspects of the atonement, I feel like I need to do a lot of this groundwork by just kind of setting a little bit of the, maybe the cultural, the societal context to help us to think through why it is that, that these things that we're going to be talking about, uh, is, why they're so repugnant, why they're so uh, offensive to people. I think one of the reasons is that, so imagine with me, we all have 
at the door of our mind, we all have a mental bouncer. Like those outside a nightclub, you have one in your head, and he guards all your thoughts. So, imagine for a moment that you're in Bunsen, Bunsen Burger after church, having a, a double cheeseburger or something, whatever you prefer, and a, and a vegan, a committed, an evangelistic vegan comes in and tells you that what you're doing is a heinous act of murder, and that you're going to die because what you're reading ultimately isn't very healthy for you. What does your mental bouncer do? Does your mental bouncer take that idea and go, come on in, let, let him mill around with all the other ideas and see what comes up to the top? No. Your mental bouncer turns him away at the door, turns that thought away at the door, and you think, no, that's ridiculous. I'm enjoying my burger. If God didn't want animals to be eaten, he wouldn't have made them of meat. You see, you don't, you don't weigh it up rationally you turn certain thoughts away at the door. We all have a mental bouncer. All of the non-Christian friends that you talk to all have a mental bouncer that turns certain thoughts away. I'll give you another example. Your mental Say your mental bouncer is very rational. It's very rational, very scientific, takes pride in studying the natural world. So along comes a thought looking to get inside your brain, and the thought says, miracles happen that outside the natural laws, there is a lawmaker, and that he has the right to tinker with the laws from time to time, and that's precisely what a miracle is. It's the tinkering of the lawmaker of the natural laws. So, biblical examples, Jesus walking in the water, the feeding of the 5,000, the parting of the Red Sea, raising people from the dead, and so the list could go on and on and on. Now, again, what does your mental bouncer do? He doesn't even consider the idea that miracles are possible because the very notion sounds ridiculous to him. The question is then, is your bouncer objective? No, he's not. He's a filter. He has already made up his mind about who's getting in and who's not. Do you see? People aren't objective. They've already got their mind made up, and so they don't even consider things. And so we come to the central message of Christianity. We come to the cross, the idea, uh, the, the idea that comes from these pages and from the pages of the Bible is that humanity is morally and spiritually bankrupt, that we have rejected the God who made us, that we justly deserve death, because we have committed treason against God, who is the source of all life. But, the Bible continues, that in Jesus, God comes to rescue humanity and to stand in our place as our substitute. That's what we're looking at. In a profound act of selfless love, he suffers death that we might have life. What does your mental bouncer do with that idea if you're not a Christian? He turns it away at the door. Why? Because he's already convinced. He's already convinced that human beings are actually essentially good, that we're not helpless, that the very idea of some sort of objective morality, some sort of objective right and wrong is pretty crazy. More than that, he's actually heard of this Jesus guy. 
He's heard of him before, and all he is is a dusty relic of traditional morality. He's a power play used to oppress people. Your bouncer is convinced that there's no such thing of right and wrong, only of worshipping in the bedroom, of no right, just right for me, or right now. Now, here's the point. This is the big idea of why I've been talking about this mental bouncer. This is a helpful analogy for me. It might not be for you. The point is that for you and for the people that you engage with, if, you're, if you've been talking to a non-Christian for a long time and you're there going, why doesn't he get it? Why doesn't he just see what I see? It's so obvious. The reason why is because the mental bouncer inside your head doesn't turn away what's false and let in what's true. He lets in what he already agrees with, or what everybody else agrees with, or what society says should be let in. Do you see? He's not a, he's not a truth-falsehood filter. He's, a, he's moved by society. He's moved by your already formed opinions. Is that really how you want to manage your thought life? Surely what we want to do is we want to let in what's true and reject what's false, not just what's convenient to believe. Is that an unreasonable thought? Wouldn't it be a good idea then to to sack that bouncer and to encourage the non-Christian friends that you're interacting with to sack that bouncer? Because it doesn't actually help them to determine what's true. To challenge these ideas of, are your preformed notions, those things that make up your bouncer, are they true at all? Are they good? Are they beautiful? And rather than, ha- than having a bouncer that the world assign- assigns, wouldn't it make more sense to let the God who made us inform how we ought to think. Wouldn't that make more sense? The God who made us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, shouldn't he inform what we let in and what we reject? And what he encourages us to let in is this idea that humanity is helpless and that we need a substitute. Sure, one of the things that people like Hosier, Kings of Leon, Uh, fun, all of those guys, one of the things that they do hit upon on their right is that there is a loveless, graceless, cold form of Christianity out there that, that we and everybody else should reject. But that is not the Christianity presented to us here in the Bible. And so, that was all by way of introduction. I'm back. (laughs) Let us look at Jesus in the garden again. Put your bouncer and send him off on a tea break and come again to this passage. And we're just going to ask two questions. What does this say about us? And what does this say about God? First of all, we're going to have a look at what it says about God. What does this passage say about God? First of all, what we see is that Jesus is in anguish. 
See, verse 38, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going on a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is in anguish. It's a very evocative couple of verses, isn't it? That this Jesus, this Jesus who, who calmed the storm, this Jesus who walked on the water, who fed the multitude, who, who raised a widow's son from the dead, that now at this point, he falls to his knees, overwhelmed, and cries out to God. In Luke's account of the garden, he would say that, that he became so sorrowful, so in anguish, that sweat like great drops of blood would fall to the ground. It's that level of intensity. And it is all at the prospect of a cup. You see that twice, verse 39, let this cup pass from me. Or verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Again, a reference to the cup. And we're told that he, does, he prays a third time in the same words. What is, what is causing Jesus to react like this is a cup. Now we had two readings from the Old Testament to help us explain what this cup is. And refresh your mind from Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus, the Son of God, fully man and fully God, is facing the prospect of suffering the full measure of God's wrath against sin. That's what's causing him to act this way. That's what the cup is. And of course, the objection will come against this idea of a God of wrath. Doesn't the Bible say God is love? Isn't the idea of wrath a very Old Testament idea? It's a fundamentalist sort of idea. Well, it's worth understanding that what wrath isn't is the temper tantrum that a child might throw. It is not something, it's not something arbitrary. It's not something heated. It's not, it's not like a volcanic explosion. We would be right not to respect or believe in that kind of God, and that is not the kind of God that we are presented with in Scripture. God's wrath, rather, is his righteous anger and indignation against injustice, selfishness, and self-love. That's what sin is. Sin is essentially self-love. It is not loving God and others as we ought. That's what Jesus says it means to, uh, to follow him and, to, and to, to live as we were created to be. We're created to, to love God and love others. And so to love ourselves is sin. That's how Augustine, the great church father, would describe it. He describes sin as being turned in on yourself. And the wrath of God is his settled anger 
against this sort of self-love. What does this tell us about God? Well, at the very least, it tells us that he's concerned about justice. We want, we want, we like that, don't we? We want a God who's concerned about justice, who doesn't wink at sin, who doesn't just sweep it under the carpet. We don't want God to say to, use the most extreme example, you don't want God to say to Hitler, don't worry about it, Hitler, come on in. You don't want that. We want a God who is concerned about justice, who isn't indifferent to what's going on in the world. And so, just to push that thorny idea a little bit further, if we're really honest, we just don't like it when it applies to us. We like the idea of of injustice falling on other people. But but me? I'm quite a good guy. I haven't done anything wrong. No, I love myself. I am selfish. I have gone my own way. I have not acknowledged the God who made me. We prefer to cast ourselves in the role of the victim rather than the perpetrator. And that's the reality. You see, the reality is that the cup, the cup that Jesus is about to drink, it fits perfectly into your hands and into my hands. It fits perfectly there because of every bitter thought, every evil deed, every injustice, every mean-spirited, envious, angry thought and act. Or it simply fits into our hands because of that settled determination that I will decide my own fate. I will go my own way. Yet, here, on the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the perfect Son, begins to taste in his soul the contents of that awful cup. And in a few hours, he will drain it to the dregs. And we cannot escape the idea that he does that for us. He does that as our substitute in our place. I think one of the things that that a lot of people are seeking, that a lot of people value is a, a tangible and a real expression of love. Everybody just wants to feel loved. That's why Hosier's worshiping in the bedroom. He wants to feel connected. He wants to to know that he is known. And he wants to know somebody in a profound way. People are seeking this tangible, real, profound expression of love. But think about what's going on here. This is the God of the universe. Jesus describes himself in verse 45 as the Son of Man. That's a a term that he plucks from the book of Daniel, from Daniel chapter 7. And he applies it to himself. And the Son of Man is, is is this eternal being who is given authority, who is given dominion over all life. And yet, he is willing to lay down his life for people, for the people who hate him 
He loves his father to the extent that he'll be obedient to his father's will, even if it means his death. That's what we see in these verses. He loves us to the extent that he will face our punishment in our place. Can you honestly interact with what the Bible says here and say that this isn't a profound and real and tangible expression of love? love that we all crave, need, seek, yearn for? The cross is not some distant thing. It is the God-man coming and dying for people out of a pure act of love, of true self-giving, And what does it say about us? Secondly and finally, what does this passage say about us, about humanity, about who we are as people? We need to be honest with ourselves here. Long ago, many thousands of years before this, long ago, there was a different garden and a different man. God had given this man everything. The world was his to enjoy When his wife came to him, he sang with delight. And God gave him more power than he could have possibly imagined, more power than Tim Cook and Barack Obama combined. But when that man faced the choice of obeying and following the will of God or of following the lie of more, that other man, Adam, said, Not your will, but mine be done. And that has been the mantra of humanity. Not your will, but mine be done. Not your will, but mine be done. And humanity has continued down the generations as we've run further and further from the author of life, and it has resulted in nothing but bitterness and death. And now we stand in another garden with this man, who despite the shame, despite the agony, despite the disgrace that he is about to face, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. He stands where we should stand. He endures the blows that were ours. He walks our road. He carries our cross. He dies our death. We are more weak than we are willing to admit. But the Bible is honest about it. The characters around Jesus in this passage show the weakness of humanity. The disciples are asleep at this moment of great need. They're sleeping. Jesus calls out their weakness. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what else does Judas the betrayer speak of? That is the one who is coming in verse 46. Rise, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. What does that speak of? Then human weakness, that we would betray the author of life for money. For money. Human weakness. 
Jesus asks the question of his disciples, his closest friends, the inner three, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. He answers the question, asks the question in verse 40, could you not watch one hour? And the tragic rhetorical response that comes screaming back about all of humanity is no. We are weaker than we are ever willing to admit. The Son of Man, he says, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The one who has all authority will finally lay it aside and place himself into the hands of sinful men. What a Savior. But here's the beauty of the gospel. We are weak, guilty, vile, and helpless. We, spotless Lamb of God, was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is the sinner's substitute, that Jesus is our substitute even when we are weak. He substitutes himself for the sleepers, for the traitors, for the accusers, for the abusers, for the murderers, for the sinners, for those who are given to self-love, for a settled determination to follow our own path. He is our substitute. He doesn't wait for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to tidy up our act, and then say, okay, I'll die for you. He is the sinner's substitute. And so how should we respond? How should you respond this morning? We're going to go into a time of sharing the Lord's Supper together. It's worth reflecting on how you're going to respond to Jesus, our substitute. Imagine with me someone in very obvious and profound need. Perhaps it's a a single mother who can't afford to feed her children. Her children are malnourished, they have no shoes, they're always dirty. And you come along out of love and and a desire to help, you come around to that lady's house with food, with new shoes for her children, with money for medicine. And when she answers the door, she shouts at you. She tells you to back off, to mind your own business, to insist that there is nothing wrong and then slams the door in your face. How should that lady respond? I think two things. Humility and gratitude. A humble recognition of need. Say, yes, thank you for your help. And gratitude. Thankfulness at what has been given. But we are so often like that lady. We are unwilling to admit need and we are ungrateful. The most appropriate response to Jesus, our substitute, is an admission of need and a humble, thankful heart for what has been given. Our need is great. Don't let your mental bouncer tell you differently. But Jesus is a great Savior. 
Don't let your mental bouncer tell you any differently. So let's respond with humility and gratitude. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saw us in our need and in the Lord Jesus you have met us in that need and that you have lifted us up and set our feet upon the rock that you have restored us that you have brought us from death to life thank you that he is our substitute that he he took slavery so that we could be free that he took abandonment that we could be part of a new community that he took the curse that we could be blessed, that he tasted death, that we might have life. We pray that we would respond with humility and gratitude. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.